0: The Testament reading comes from Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David.
1: The New Testament reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Let's stand together.
0: Us the joy.
1: Continue in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we're going to look at Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open there and follow along. Uh, Else, that text is also printed in your order of worship. This is Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go? And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, as your people, we hear these words, and we know that these are familiar words about a, a meal that for many of us is, is central to who we are. At the same time, Father, we as your people have just sung this song together and we've said that we're turning to you and we are unfilled again. And so even though these words are familiar, we want to be uh, filled, Father. Uh, some of us are very aware of that hunger, very aware of that need. Others, others of us are not. Wherever we are, Father, we ask that you would meet us with this word and that you would fill us, uh, that you would show us by this word that is written, uh, the word that became flesh like us, that you'd show us his grace and that you would change us by it. And we ask it in his name, amen. So, as some of you know, our family uh, spent some time away on vacation recently, and uh, Part of the time that we were away, we spent camping in northern Tennessee. Uh, We got to the place where we were camping, to our campsite in the late afternoon. And after the tent was set up, Sarah, my middle daughter, and I uh, went away to go get some wood for the fire. Now, we didn't get any rain while we were camping, but that region had gotten a lot of rain before we arrived. So despite my best efforts, a lot of the firewood that I brought back to the campsite was pretty wet. And this was particularly troubling, especially on that first night, because Allison was going to prepare our, our dinner over the fire. Well, we got the wood back, and I tried probably for about 45 minutes to get the fire started by all of the usual, normal means. And I couldn't do it, and so I'm ashamed to admit that I finally gave up and I doused the wood with some of the fuel that we had brought for our lantern and our camp stove, and that was all it took to get a big fire going pretty quickly. And as soon as it flared up, Ellie, uh, my oldest, asked a pretty insightful question. She said, Daddy, why didn't you just do that in the first place? <clears throat> She's so onto my stubbornness at such a young age. Uh, anyhow, these logs, they steamed and they hissed for a while, but finally there were enough coals for Allison to put our food onto the fire. It was an old uh, camp standard, ground beef and diced tomatoes wrapped in aluminum foil and thrown onto the coals of the fire. Well, it took a long time to get ready, but finally it was ready. And and when it was ready, though, by this time the sun had set and it was well past the time when the girls should have reasonably been a, been asleep. Uh, but we all sat in our chairs by the fire and we dug in anyway. Now, I got to tell you that under normal circumstances, this meal um, is not a meal that I would have been really jacked up about eating. Like at home in my living room, if if I just had some hot ground beef and some diced potatoes, I wouldn't be really. You know, happy to sit down to that meal. And on top of that, after the lateness of the hour and all of the heat and the difficulty of getting the fire started, normally this meal would have been one of those meals I just wanted to get over with. But as we ate together, we all agreed that it was really one of the best meals that we had eaten together in a long time. And I probably don't need to tell you why, because it wasn't really about the food, it was about the feast. We were together as a family in front of a fire, out in the woods at night, in the cool of the evening, listening to the night insects. We were really relaxing together for the first time in a while. It wasn't about the food we were eating. It was about what eating that meal together meant. We weren't eating. We were feasting. And the same thing is going on in those very familiar words that we just heard together. The meaning of the meal that Jesus ate with his friends in the upper room, it went way beyond the bread and the wine and all of the other things that were there in that room. The meaning of that meal flew backward in time to the very identity of God's people as precious and beloved and rescued people. And at the same time, that meal flew forward in time to encompass all of God's good intentions for his people and for his world. That meal was going to sum up everything that Jesus had been saying and doing up to that point. That meal at the same time was going to explain and interpret the shocking events that were just hours away from happening. It was an epic feast. And here is the best part about it. It was set for some very unlikely people. Betrayers and deniers and cowards and fools. And here's what I want us to see this morning. The, the good news about this feast, the the gospel about this feast, if you'll let me put it like that, is that this feast is still lavishly spread out for the same kind of people. It is not a feast for the worthy. It's a feast for people who need to be rescued. It's not a feast that we earn. It is a feast of grace. It always has been and it always will be. So Mark tells us that it took place on the day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Now we know that this is happening during the last week of Jesus' life, the final week that he spent in Jerusalem. And over the last few Sundays we've been looking at snapshots of that final week of Jesus' life. It begins with Jesus entering into Jerusalem in triumph as an unlikely king riding on a donkey. But we know that this week isn't hasn't been like just like riding in on a donkey. It hasn't been anything like the normal kingly ascent to power. Instead, it's been a week of conflict. It's been a week of mystery. Jesus has spoken and acted words of judgment against the center of religious and political and social life of God's people. He's spoken words against the temple, and those were fighting words, words of insurrection and words of, of revolution. So Jesus had attracted attention from the insiders, from the religious authorities and the political authorities. They saw him as a threat to everything that week. And they set him in their sights and they had in their minds the gravest of violence against him. And I think that that's the reason why Jesus takes such great care in planning this meal. The disciples on that day, they get up and they ask him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal? And they ask that question, assuming that plans had not been made. But what they don't know is that Jesus has already set plans into motion. He says, two of you are going to go into the city and you're going to find a guy carrying a jar of water and then that guy is going to take you to another place, follow him to a house. And when he goes inside, there'll be another guy there, the owner of the house. And then you relay to him this message. Say, the teacher asks, where's the room? So that I can eat my meal, the Passover meal with my disciples. And the two do this and they find it just as Jesus had said. A large upper room furnished and ready and they get the meal prepared. So what I want us to ask is why all of the secret plans? right? Why, why all of the spy-like reconnaissance in the city? And here's what we need to understand. That this feast and all that it will mean is not an afterthought to Jesus. These plans are not some quick response to all of this troublesome opposition that has arisen over the week. Jesus is not some tragic hero caught up in events that are too big for him to handle. This feast was going to be about everything that Jesus wanted to say to his disciples. He did not want it to be interrupted. It had to unfold exactly how he wanted it to unfold. It was going to sum up everything. It wasn't plan B. That meal and that room was the place to which everything had been headed all along. And the disciples, they clearly don't understand this yet, and I think that sometimes we forget it. But remember, just before Jesus entered into Jerusalem, just before they walked in for this final week, Jesus had said, I have not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. He's out to rescue He's out not just to pay a ransom but to be a ransom. And of course that's why Jesus makes all of this happen around the Passover celebration and the Passover feast. Because of all of the feasts and celebrations of God's people, Passover was the one that celebrated God rescuing his people, ransoming them out of slavery, giving them a new life and a new vocation to go along with it. You remember the story? Moses storms into the court of Pharaoh and says, let my people go. But as great as Moses was, it wasn't enough. And God still had to come in for the rescue. And that meal, the meal that commemorated that moment, is the one that Jesus is about to eat with his disciples. It's the meal that starts with the question, why is this night different from every other night? And the answer to that question, especially on that night, was going to be profound and beautiful beyond imagining. But the way that this meal starts, the way that it begins to unfold, is astonishing. After Jesus and the disciples are reclined at the table, after they have begun to eat, here is what Jesus says. One of you is going to betray me. One of you who is sitting right here with me. These guys know all of the trouble that Jesus has attracted. They know how threatening he is to the insiders. And now Jesus is saying that he's going to be betrayed. And the betrayer is not on the outskirts of the followers of Jesus. The betrayer is right there in the room with them and with him. And the thing that I want us to see, the thing that I want us to focus on is the disciples' response. Mark tells us they began to be sorrowful, and one after another they went up to Jesus and said, Is it me? Is it me? Jesus says that he's going to be sold out. And their response is not concern for him. It's not, let's figure out a plan to make sure that you don't get betrayed. It's not, let's figure out a plan to rescue you, Jesus, or to serve you, Jesus. Their response is deeply self-centered. They want to be served, not served. Is it I? What does that say about me, Jesus? And you know, if this was the only moment in the coming hours where Jesus' friends acted this way, maybe it wouldn't be as remarkable, but we know how the story goes. In just a few hours Jesus is going to go out into the garden. He's going to ask three of them, watch and pray with me. And they're all three of them going to fall asleep. And then a few hours after that, in the darkness of the night, when, when the Romans and Judas come and Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, all of those disciples, all of them, the ones who had lived with Jesus for years, the ones who had hung on his every last word, the ones who had laughed with him and cried with him and ate with him and taught with him and healed with him, every last one of them is going to turn tail and run away from him as quick as they can. Every one. Every one. And then later, in the early morning hours, Peter is going to desperately try to save his own skin by denying that he ever knew who Jesus was. I don't know what you're saying. I don't even understand, Peter says. Betrayers and deniers and cowards and self-centered fools. Those are the ones sitting at the table with Jesus. And people, this is what I want us to hear, that there is not one detail of this. There is not one detail of their flaws, not one intricacy of their sins, not one curve of their ridiculously hard hearts that was unknown to Jesus. None of it, none of it was surprising to him. Not even the betrayal with a kiss. And in a million years you could try to search it out. In a million years you could try to figure out why Jesus does what he does and you might never get to the bottom of it and it would be good to try because Jesus does not abandon them in that moment. He doesn't get unhinged and yell at them. He doesn't say, you know what guys, just get out of here. I don't need you anymore. Instead, he lays out a lavish feast for them and gives them everything. He says, I'm going to rescue you in the very place of your shame. And if we're being honest, every one of us here, starting, starting with me, we know that the disciples do not have anything to teach us about being betrayers or deniers or cowards or fools. Their script is our script. Our place in this story is right there at the table beside them my name is Peter and your name is Peter our choices in life and our our responses to the things that life throws at us are often riddled with self-service and self-interest you know how it goes we we use our talents and we use our money and we use our time and, and we use our gifts for ourselves and to further our own agendas You know how this is. We all know how it is. We insulate ourselves from other people, even people in our own families, because being in an honest and true relationship is costly and we don't want to pay. We try all kinds of means to put the pieces of our life together that we just can't make fit. We run to distraction after distraction and pleasure after pleasure to sex or to food or to substances, anything to make us forget that we can't make it work. And no matter where you are on the spectrum, no matter where any of us are, maybe on this spectrum of self-concern and self-interest, maybe it's just dawning on you. Or or maybe you feel like you're doing pretty well. Or maybe you feel like you're completely caught in it and you cannot get out. Let me tell you that the answer is not to despair. The answer is not to, to go into a corner and go into more introspection. The answer is not to run to some other distraction that can just hopefully make you forget. The answer is to lift up your eyes to this lavish, gracious, epic feast that Jesus has set. The answer is to lift up our eyes and see that feast. Because Jesus has set a table for ridiculous and self-centered and self-destructive people like you and me. He has set this table for us. And Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, saying, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. And he gave it to them. And do we hear that? He gave it to them five beautiful words that are at the very beginning of our rescue. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's greater than Moses. He's better than Moses. He's the reality to the shadow that was Moses. He storms not into the court of Pharaoh. He storms into the court of sin and death that, that we were complicit in building, that we have, we have constructed with our own hands. He storms into that court and he tears the place down and he gives us a new life. He ransoms us out of that place, sets us free. And when he gives us his body and when he gives us his blood on the cross, forgiveness is just the first gift that he gives us. He gives us his presence by his spirit, which means that he gives us a new way to live and a new way to be in this world. He changes us. So that we can begin to live like he lived with, with affections and lives that are turned outward in service and concern for others. Seeking the benefit and, and the flourishing and the good of others and the good of this broken world before our own good. He changes us to live in the way that we were made to live. That we know in our bones we're made to live. And there's another gift that he gives us in this feast that points to the cross. Jesus makes a promise that he will not eat it again until he sits down with us. He will happily wait. And he will sit down with us and eat this meal again when he has come to make everything new. That's the hope of the Christian faith people, that we can be forgiven. That our lives can change. Our behaviors can change. And that we can see God and know him so will we believe will we believe again as those who have followed Jesus for a long time will we believe again or will we believe maybe for the first time ever will we believe and eat with him because he gave it to us and he invites us to his feast of grace let's pray Father, again, we ask that you would make us people who are hungry. Father, we ask that you would make us people who are very aware that we are unfilled and and we need your food and we need your drink. Father, we thank you for this lavish feast that Christ set out for people like us for betrayers and deniers and cowards and fools. We thank you that that the qualification to eat this feast is that we are like that. Father, help us as your people to cling to the grace of Christ as as we see it in this meal, to cling to the grace of Christ and find in his death our life. We pray that this would be true so that your beauty would be more evident so that our lives would change and so that we, in turn, could be part of bringing the kingdom of God to bear in this broken and hurting world. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.